0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power
1: to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to John Eitken about the new book, The Infertility Track, Why Life Choices Impact Your Fertility and Why We Must Act Now. A potential crisis in human fertility is brewing. As societies become more affluent, they experience changes that have a dramatic impact on reproduction. This book will address, in a unique and multifaceted way, how the consequences of modern life affect fertility, so that we can consider behavioral social, medical and environmental changes, which could reduce the severity of what is about to come. Well, John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So how are you? How was your week?
1: So I had a great week. Um, Very, very busy week. Um, This is uh, a very busy time for us. We're engaged in a lot of research currently. So uh, I was uh, very occupied during the course of the last week.
0: Catching a bit of a sunshine on Sunday.
1: We had great It's actually great weather this weekend. Of course, I'm in the Southern Hemisphere, so this is our winter. Um, But uh, it was a bright, shiny, but um, cool, crisp day. And uh, yeah, lovely. Very, very good.
0: Excellent. So can you tell us, what do you do?
1: So um, you want to hear a little bit about my background?
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Yes. So... um, Basically, uh, my career started uh, way back in the the late 60s. Uh, I left home, um, my rural home in the west of England, and went to London because this was um, 1966, and London was in full swing at that time. And uh, I uh, rather inadvertently, over the course of three years, got a degree in zoology, and um, left uh, three years later with degree in hand and uh, a very detailed knowledge of the evolution of the reptilian skull, but not uh, really much idea about what I was going to do uh, career-wise. And then uh, I had the enormous good luck of being offered a uh, PhD position at the University of Cambridge in the uh, laboratory of Roger Short, who was probably one of the greatest uh, reproductive biologists of his generation. And uh, he took me on board and basically enthused me about the whole subject of reproductive biology. And uh, I have been a reproductive biologist ever since. Uh, I left Cambridge, uh, went to Edinburgh and and also France, did a series of postdocs. Then actually I worked for the World Health Organization for a while because at the time we were very concerned about uh, uncontrolled population growth and as well as the World Health Organization, and they set up a unit to study better ways in which we could try to control uh, human fertility. Um, after that was over, I went back to Edinburgh, and by this time, Roger Short had moved to Edinburgh and set up a, a Medical Research Council research unit, focusing entirely on uh, reproductive biology. And uh, I worked with them for about uh, 25 years, um, became a a professor there and ran a research group studying reproductive biology, but particularly the male, because uh, male infertility is very prevalent. uh, And yet we know very little about uh, its origins. So uh, we did a lot of work on the infertile male to try to understand uh, why men lose their fertility so frequently. And then uh, one day in about 1997, I got a random phone call from somebody I I didn't know uh, who said that they just had a uh, search committee meeting and they were interested to know if I was interested in a job, a chair at the University of Newcastle. And I thought they meant Newcastle on time. So uh, I politely declined and they said, well, that's a pity because uh, we would have paid your airfare to come out and have a look at us. So I had to say, well, can you orientate me? Where are you speaking to me from? And he explained that there was another Newcastle far, far away um, on the east coast of Australia. So I came out and had a look and uh, um, loved the university and the people here. So uh, I I moved from um, Scotland, where I'd spent the last 25 years, to uh, Australia. And here I set up a research group. Uh, the Priority Research Centre, looking into reproductive health, which is still uh, up and running today. Um, I got briefly diverted to become Pro Vice-Chancellor of Health and Medicine, so I ran the medical faculty for about seven years. Um, but now I am retired and able to focus entirely on the things that interest me. And the thing that really interests me at the moment is uh, are the causes of uh, human infertility. And uh, that's the topic on which I've recently written this book, uh, The Infertility Trap.
0: Wow, that's an impressive career journey. So I was wondering if you have um, anything to say to our student listeners, early career researchers, and especially what do you like about being in academia?
1: Okay, that's a really great question. Um, I think, you know, Being in academia is a wonderful privilege to begin with. Uh, You get the opportunity to pursue your intellectual passions. And uh, basically, you won't get anywhere in academia unless you're passionate about your your subject. So uh, I tell my students that if they're engaged in academia, there are three things that they have to do. First of all, they have to be passionate about what they do, passionate about their subject and uh, intellectually interested in its future development. Second thing they have to do is to work uh, extremely hard. Um, Life in academia is not for the faint-hearted. It is extremely competitive. Unless you're prepared to work as hard as your competitors in North America or Europe, uh, you can't make headway in this business. And then the third thing, and it's equally important, is uh, you have to have a bit of showbiz about you because at the end of the day, Uh, You've got to be able to convince people about the originality and the value of your ideas. And it doesn't matter if it's a cynical audience listening to one of your research presentations or it's a a funding agency wondering whether or not they're going to uh, give you a grant. You have to be able to communicate the things that you do in uh, an erudite and enthusiastic manner so that you can get funded and continue to do the work that you love. So, those are any students listening. I would say those are the three major things. You have to be uh, passionate and intellectually engaged. You have to be prepared to work extremely hard. And you have to focus very much on communicating your ideas so that you convince others that your ideas have value and potential.
0: Oh, what a great advice. <laughs> so, your latest book, The Infertility Trap Why Life Choices Impact Your Fertility and Why We Must Act Now. So how did you come to writing it?
1: Um, so it's really had, a, a, I guess, a very long evolution. It's something I've been interested in the background about um, the development of the human population. Um, many people think that uh, you know, humankind has um, evolved to some sort of state of Darwinian perfection and can now look down with a degree of ar- arrogance and superiority on all the other living things in the biosphere, but in truth, we are still evolving. And uh, the future fate of humanity is something that interests me a great deal. Uh, for most of my professional life, I have been a biochemist and I've studied uh, the uh, basically the cell biology of the reproductive process. But uh, two years ago, I retired from my academic position and uh, now had the opportunity to think more broadly about how the work that I'd done for the previous 40 years or so actually fitted into a larger landscape. And so I started to write this book. I think in many ways I was aided by the COVID pandemic because uh, uh, we were locked down anyway. So uh, I had to uh, uh, find something to do during the lockdown periods, and writing a book seemed a very reasonable thing to do. I pitched the idea of the book to uh, Cambridge University Press and uh, happily they uh, were very enthusiastic about it. So I knew that I had uh, publishers ready to receive the text when I'd written it. And I spent the next 18 months basically uh, putting together the arguments that are at the core of this book on the infertility trap.
0: Excellent. So let's dive into some of those arguments that you present in your book. And can we start with a very basic question? So is there really a crisis in human fertility?
1: Okay, that's a great question and a good place to start, as you point out. So look, um, for most of my life, I've not been uh, worried about population decline. I've been uh, concerned about the opposite, which is uh, excessive population growth. And um, to to convince people that there is going to be a pending crisis involving population decline is actually very difficult at the present time because uh, every minute of every day we are surrounded by evidence of overpopulation, whether this is uh, the high levels of pollution we live with, uh, pandemic diseases, or uh, all the manifestations of uh, climate change. All these things tell us that uh, we have um, an excessive number of people on the planet and that uh, some correction in our population numbers would be a good thing. And I guess the message in the book is, yes, this is is the case. And in fact, this will happen. And already um, the, the seeds are sown of population decline. And there are a number of things now working to drive down human population numbers. We'll probably keep on increasing our numbers for the next uh, 10 years or so. But then uh, the numbers, uh, um, population numbers will start to decline. And so what I'm trying to do is to make people aware of the various forces that are going to drive population decline. Because um, we don't want this to be an uncontrolled process. If we're not prepared for it and it suddenly happens, uh, it may be a very difficult process to stop In many ways, I think it's a lot like climate change. Climate change um, was very difficult to, as an argument, to get any traction because the time scale of climate change is is too long for the attention span of the average individual. These are not things that happen over uh, three to five year cycles. These are things that happen over decades, if not centuries. And uh, the fate of the human population has really been sown already. Um, Already uh, we are seeing reduced fertility rates all, all over the world. And this is going to manifest itself in rapid population decline, but not not now, not uh, next year, but probably in 20 or 30 years time, we'll see the beginning of population change. It won't be consistent across all countries. Some countries will show population decline earlier than others. And um, I think China has already turned the corner and its population is now declining on the decline, the total number of people, not just their fertility is declining, but also the number of people in China is declining. So they, in many ways, are going to be the forerunner of what is going to happen in many other countries.
0: So what are some of the ways that you study human uh, fertility, populations, and global demographics?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we're very fortunate in that there are very good databases available from the World Bank and the United Nations. So, what I've been doing is putting together those databases and trying to make sense of the various changes that we see, both in fertility rates, uh, but also in in other things like um, um, global productivity, uh, affluence, uh, the role of education, uh, the role of contraception, the role of urbanization. These are all factors that we know impinge on uh, population numbers. So it's been, I guess, a year and a half of putting together all that data that is available and trying to uh, isolate what the various forces are that are going to drive down uh, human populations. And uh, in essence, there are three major causes. There's the short-term causes, which which are extremely powerful and are largely social, then there are some intermediate uh, level causes that will work out over the next uh, 20 or 30 years, which are very much lifestyle and environment induced. And then finally, there are very long term changes, uh, which are evolutionary changes in our fundamental fertility. So all of these things are going to have an impact on total population numbers, but they will operate at different times with different, different levels of uh, severity.
0: So to understand this field a little bit more, can you present us with some of the terminology and some of the concepts that we should think about?
1: Okay, so um, uh, I'm not a demographer, uh, but um, central to sort of demographic concepts is uh, a process known as the demographic transition. And uh, what this adventure uh, essentially says is the following that uh, when our species was evolving and we've been on the planet now for what uh, 200,000 years or so, so uh, we've been here a long time for most of that time, our population numbers were very low. Essentially, we had a high birth rate that was matched by a high death rate and uh, population numbers were stable and uh, sustainable. And then um, I guess things really started to change after the first industrial revolution. And societies, not all of them, but some of them started to become very affluent. And as countries go through the socioeconomic development um, spectrum, um, they uh, always lose fertility. And uh, the reason for that is that... um, one of the first things that happens when societies become more affluent is that childhood and infant mortality rates go down. So if you're a, 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 a paleolithic family, you have to have five or six children because probably four or five of them are going to die before they reach reproductive age. But as we become more affluent and we have a better uh, grasp of providing safe healthy environments for our children so infant mortality rates come down and then there's no need to have a large family because if you only have three or four children you know they're all going to survive so um, fertility rates come down as a natural part of the demographic transition Uh, to some extent that doesn't have a massive impact immediately on population numbers uh, because um, the other thing that happens with affluence is we live longer so that, that helps keep numbers of people on the planet. But in the end, the uh, reduced fertility rates are going to result in a decline in the population. And uh, you see that very dramatically in Southeast Asia. If you look at the uh, tiger economies, like uh, Taiwan or South Korea or Singapore, their populations uh, increased slightly after the war. There was a lot of optimism. And the average family size in Taiwan, South Korea, and Singapore would have been somewhere between seven and eight at that time. And then um, following their socioeconomic development, their fertility rates, that is the number of children born per woman, uh, declined dramatically, and so all those countries now have the lowest fertility rates in the world. They have a fertility rate of only just above one. So um, another demographic principle is a couple, a man and a woman, have to have at least 2.1 children in order to uh, maintain the population at a constant level. So if your fertility rate goes below 2.1, Uh, then the population is bound to decline. And this has happened in those tiger economies, it's happened throughout the developed world, Australia, most countries in Europe, the USA, we all have fertility rates, which are now below replacement. So it's inevitable that the population will decline. And, you know, an interesting series of questions then are raised about, uh, well, This decline has been extremely dramatic. What is it that's driving it? And a a lot of the uh, arguments of the book are about trying to understand the driving forces behind this very dramatic decline in human fertility. And uh, I guess one one of the first concepts to get out of the way is the Malthusian concept. So Malthus was a philosopher who had an idea about uh, populations, which was uh, um, essentially they grow. as a a geometric progression. In other words, they grow exponentially. But the resources that sustain those populations can only grow in a linear fashion, arithmetically. So the result is that most populations outstrip the resources that are needed to sustain them. And essentially, they starve to death. Um, And in the 1960s, a very powerful book was written by Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb. And this influenced a lot of people's thinking. And he basically took a Malthusian concept to his logical conclusion and said that in the end, human populations will grow to the point where they use up all the resources that are available and then they will essentially starve to death. And in his book, he said that by 2020, and remember this book was written in 1968, uh, he said that by 2020, the United Kingdom would consist of uh, 70 million very impoverished Very hungry people. Well, he was right on the number. (laughs) I don't think they're impoverished and they're certainly not hungry. So, in fact, as our fertility rates have come down, our capacity to generate food, and I'm talking here globally, our capacity to generate uh, both crops and animal products um, has increased. So, you know, the reason why fertility rates are falling has got nothing to do with the ability to generate the resources needed to sustain the population. We've got plenty of resources. The reason the uh, populations have come down is something to do with affluence. It's whenever populations become affluent, you see um, fertility rates decline. So um, that, that obviously leads then to questions about how affluence uh, drives uh, infertility. And one of the most uh, powerful ones is certainly uh, female education. So uh, all over the world, we are ha- very happily seeing an increase in female education. But as soon as female education rates start to increase, uh, birth rates come down for very obvious reasons. Um When women become educated, they become empowered to make decisions about what kind of family they want. Uh, There is no need in more affluent societies to have large numbers of children, and they very rightly express their willingness to enter the workforce and express themselves through their professional activities. So having there is a kind of shift, I think, in the purpose of existence. It's no longer just about having children. Um, or uh, both genders, men and women, on a voyage to sort of self-fulfillment and uh, realising their potential. And uh, it's not necessarily just about having children. And indeed now, uh, childlessness is relatively common. At least one in four women won't ha- have any children. And is uh, there is no stigma attached to that. In fact, uh, uh, childless, successful, professional women are a role model for many uh, young girls these days. So, so that you know, that's uh, it's a good thing that female education has arisen, and uh, it's uh, an unfortunate consequence of that is that uh, fertility rates decline, and. Um, In many ways, it's a kind of virtuous cycle because the more prosperous you are, the lower the infant mortality rates are. Uh, That means that your fertility rates come down. That means that women have more opportunity to become educated. So uh, that increases the prosperity of the country and so on. So you go around in this kind of virtuous cycle. But what gets lost in this virtuous cycle is our biology. Uh, We are a very unusual species in that we stop reproducing in midlife. Most most species, uh, a laboratory rat or a a wallaby uh, jumping around the the park where I'm uh, currently talking to you from, um, they will reproduce until the day they die. But not us. Um, We stop reproducing in midlife. And this creates a major problem for women. Because uh, if they engage in developing their professional activities, and uh, only when their careers are established that they turn to uh, the concept of having a family, um, they're beginning to enter those, those years when um, fertility starts to spontaneously decline. And in all women, it declines between the ages of roughly 35 and 42. Fertility is lost. So uh, this is a major issue for us. And um, you know, in many ways, we can, contra- we can control many things about our environment and the way that we organize society. But the one thing we cannot control is our biology. So uh, we, we can't sort of ignore this as a fact. This is part of uh, the human condition. And we somehow have to uh, rethink the way that we structure society in order to allow women to achieve uh, their twin goals of, uh, uh, of uh, the, having a professional career and um, uh, having a family, if that's what they want. They should be enabled to do that. And uh, it's a, a kind of a, a modern-day tragedy that um, there are thousands of women uh, in IVF programs uh, hoping that IVF will rescue their age-dependent infertility Uh, And it won't. Uh, It's one thing IVF cannot do is uh, improve the fertility of a 42-year-old woman. So um, we really, we can't keep banging our heads against that particular brick wall. We have to wake up to the fact that fertility does decline between the ages of 35 and 42. And uh, somehow, um, as a society, uh, accommodate and encourage people if they want to have a family to have them earlier in life and not wait for that period of time when spontaneous infertility arrives. And this is the kind of thing that I think Scandinavian countries are very good at. This is about uh, providing parental support schemes that allow couples to have children and uh, not uh, suffer from too much interruption of their career development. It's about engaging both men and women in the child rearing process so that the, the load uh, and responsibilities are equally shared between the two partners. It's all those kinds of things that we need to engage in. The one thing we cannot do is just keep relying on IVF to uh, solve the problem because, uh, because it can't. And it's uh, as I said, it's a kind of modern-day tragedy that people um, put their faith in this technology to help them. IVF is, is a wonderful technology; it's uh, uh, enabled the creation of, of uh, literally millions of children that would not otherwise have existed. But this is the one area where it just can't help very much. So you know, that's the, the, that's one of the major sort of um, social issues. Uh, another one is um, that we've become progressively urbanised um, all over the world. Even Africa is now you know becoming increasingly urbanised. and when you move to more um, urban environments, it automatically has a negative effect on uh, family size. So there's just limited space to have a large family if you're living in a two-room apartment. Um, In a city environment, women will have improved access to work and education. So that, uh, again, counts against having large families. In an urban environment, women will have, uh, and men, will have access to improved access to contraception. And also something which uh, I'll go on to in a minute is that uh, in urban environments, there's often high levels of pollution and disease that impair fertility. And then the other issue, which is really interesting, and uh, I was quite surprised when I went into the databases and found this, um, but in all modern industrialized societies, as the average family size gets reduced to around about two, so roughly replacement level, uh, marriage rates drop like a stone. So uh, throughout the developed world, we've seen a uh, reduction in the number of couples that are getting married. And um, in the beginning, I think uh, if, um, you know, marriage, people get married because they want to have children. So this is both a a, a symptom and a cause. It's um, that people have discovered that they don't necessarily want to have children. So the need to get married, married decreases. But also in parallel with that, we're seeing increased numbers of children born outside of marriage. So uh, in a way, um, one of the uh, social constructs which is suffering in in modern day society is the concept of marriage. Um, And uh, that's another sort of social thing that we have to think about, which is having an impact on uh, reproduction. So, you know, those are some of the major sort of uh, social things that are causing uh, infertility, by far the most uh, powerful is the reduction in infant mortality and the resulting increase in the opportunities of women to become educated. And then the consequential delay in them trying to uh, establish a family. And uh, if you leave it to you're over the age of 35, it can become problematic. Not for everybody, but for some people it will be.
0: And how does male infertility look like?
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question. So that brings me nicely on to uh, other causes, and particularly environmental and lifestyle causes. So um, male infertility is, or first of all, human male fertility is very low. As a species, men are uh, relatively infertile. So, we measure fertility as a fecundity rate. So, if again, uh, if you're a a laboratory rat or a feral wallaby, um, every time you have intercourse with a female in estrus, they will get pregnant pretty much every time. So, fecundity is close to 100%. In our species, even under the best of circumstances, fecundity is around about 25%. So, only one in four. Um, uh, uh, accident insemination will result in a pregnancy in our species so we start from a very low base (laughs) we have very poor facility to begin with and this is associated with uh, very poor uh, semen quality in men and then against that background we have this uh, phenomenon that uh, uh, took a long time for people to believe this phenomenon was first um, described in the early 90s And uh, it was uh, widely disputed and said it couldn't possibly be true. And this is the phenomenon of declining sperm counts. So the idea that the average sperm count per male has been decreasing with time. Um, But now we've had some really large studies done. And uh, it's, uh, I think, now uh, incontrovertible, irrefutable, that sperm counts are declining all over the world. And as a rough figure, we would say that um, sperm counts have halved in the last 50 years. So uh, whereas sperm counts used to be roughly 100 million per mil, they're now somewhere around 50 million per mil. Mm. So something is happening in the environment that is leading to a decline in sperm count. And actually, my very good colleague, uh, Shanna Swan, has written a book about this called Countdown. And she describes this um, progressive and linear decrease in sperm numbers. It just keeps on rolling on. Whatever is causing it is not something that's going away. And um, if it it continues, then sperm numbers will decline to a point where it starts to have um, um, biological consequences in terms of fertility. So um, so these sperm counts are declining, they're declining at a rate which uh, is too fast to be genetic. So uh, it's not genetic, it has to be environmental. And um, I guess the, uh, uh, the debates are now going on as to what that environmental cause might be. One of the uh, major hypotheses is that um, uh, in 21st century, uh, in the 21st century, men are under oestrogenic attack. So uh, mm. this oestrogen comes from many different sources. Um, globally, we're seeing a pandemic of obesity. If men are overweight or um, uh, obese, uh, then they uh, have high levels of oestrogen in their blood, just generate, generated naturally. If they're old, and uh, as we push out the ages, when you know, couples are having children, more and more um, uh, middle-aged men are having, uh, having children. As you, as you age, um, your oestrogen levels in your blood increased. There is a lot of oestrogen-type compounds in the foods that we eat, both uh, dairy products and also plant products, soy products, have a lot of oestrogen. And finally, and this is the one that uh, Shanna Swan focuses on, there are a lot of estrogenic contaminants in our environment, and these are industrial pollutants like bisphenol A and the phthalate esters, all of which have an estrogenic kind of activity. And in my book, uh, The Infertility Trap, I, I put forward a hypothesis, and it's only a hypothesis that um, this, uh, this estrogen surge, which is coming from all these various sources, is actually driving down testosterone levels. And it's the lower testosterone levels that are causing the reduction in sperm generation. And there's very good evidence to support that. Um, some fabulous studies in, the, uh, in Nordic countries, in Israel and the United States. And uh, I think uh, you know, it's very important there that we, we focus on this as a concept and start to collect more data to see whether this is uh, valid as a concept. But there is then at least some circumstantial evidence that uh, the decline in sperm count might be related to an increase exposure to estrogen and a decrease in testosterone. The other thing which uh, is male related and incontrovertible, and again, very, very powerful, is that as societies become more and more um, advanced, socioeconomically advanced. The incidence of testicular cancer increases exponentially. I produce a graph in the book, which actually surprised me. I just got the databases out and looked at uh, the uh, um, incidence of testicular cancer plotted against total fertility rate. And as uh, societies become more and more socially economically advanced, and fertility rates come down, the incidence of testicular cancer goes up uh, astronomically. And, uh, and that seems to be a phenomenon all over the world. It's not uh, a US phenomenon or an Australian phenomenon. Um, in, in my book, I plot graphs for uh, all developed countries, and they all show the same trend. Uh, Interestingly enough, um, in New South Wales, where I am, uh, we have an increase in testicular cancer. But if I look at the local levels of ovarian cancer or cervical cancer, they're either not changing at all in the case of ovarian cancer or actually coming down in the case of cervical cancer. So uh, there is you know, an aspect of this which is very male-focused, not just female. If there are female cancers that are increasing, in uh, modern socioeconomically advanced uh, countries, uh, they would be uterine cancer and breast cancer. And uh, all these three cancers then, testicular cancer, uterine cancer, and breast cancer, all increasing in socioeconomically advanced countries and all share a dependence on estrogen. So, uh, uh, you know, I think it's possible to put forward at least a plausible hypothesis that this high estrogen load within the environment is not just driving down sperm counts. That, if you like, is the tip of the iceberg. It's doing much more to the developmental normality of uh, reproductive tissues and sowing the seeds for uh, increases in testicular uterine and breast cancer in, in modern developed countries. Uh, and all of these cancers, as I said, are increasing where levels of socioeconomic development are high. So this, I think, is very concerning. And you know it is a worry that um, reproductive toxicology is not, uh, doesn't have a higher profile than it, than it has now. I think we should be very worried about this. Uh, we should uh, have uh, much more um, effort being put into the surveilling compounds uh, that are released into the environment for potentially estrogenic activity. And in my book, I call for uh, a kind of an increased profile for reproductive toxicology. I think we've underestimated just how important reproductive toxicants can be. And uh, whilst, you know, drugs will go through many types of screens in order to introduce them into uh, clinical usage, uh, reproductive uh, toxicology is uh, at the bottom of the ladder. And I, in fact, I know that many advanced um, uh, pharmaceutical companies have abandoned their uh, reproductive toxicology departments because uh, there was no legal need to have data on reproductive toxicity. Well, I think that's a mistake and we should uh, try to turn that around.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, So, does that include even the household items that we use? For example, cooking, or for cooking uh, the coverings of our pans and pots? Yes,
1: uh, so certainly uh, the phthalate esters are plasticizers and they are, um, for example, they're in the, the bottles uh, where you keep the water that you subsequently drink during the course of the day. So people have plastic drink bottles uh, taking uh, taking on board uh, estrogenic activities through the plastics that they come in contact with, through the food that they eat, um, unfortunately um, um the meat industry uh, still in many parts of the world is injecting its cattle with steroids in order to put on muscle mass and then uh, those steroids are in the meat and we subsequently uh, eat the meat um there's a lot of uh, phytoestrogen in the foods that we uh, a lot of soy protein for example in the um, foods that we eat uh, um Really, this has not been studied enough. I think it's a very important area, but it's not something which has received priority. Um, But I think it should, basically.
0: So Let's talk about the implications of the falling birth rates and higher infertility. So what are the main concerns for you?
1: So uh, I I guess my major concern is that... um, All the various factors that we've been talking about are, um, that is to say, the increase in female education and the delay of childbirth until it's too late. The um, appearance of toxicants in the environment can have reproductive effects. There's no sign that these things are abating. and Indeed, these things seem to be increasing in importance as we go forward. And then overlaid on top of that is a a sort of longer term evolutionary aspect that I I don't want us to forget because I think it's gonna be very important in the long term. So when we were um, at a very early stage of socioeconomic development, Uh, at Paleolithic times, or even when in Victorian London, uh, family sizes were very large. So in Victorian London, the average family size was 11. And you had to have a large number of children because there was a high rate of infant mortality, and many of those children were going to die. And uh, under those conditions, you're always selecting for high fertility genes. You have to be capable of having 11 children in order for one or two to survive and pass your genes on into the next generation. If you are only capable of having one or two children, you probably, that they wouldn't survive and you wouldn't be contributing to the gene pool. Mm. And then as you go through the demographic transition and you get more and more sophisticated methods of uh, Uh, of uh, healthcare, and we're able to prevent infant mortality pretty much absolutely, Um, then family sizes come down and, you know, an average family size in Australia now would be what, 1.6, 1.7. Under those circumstances, uh, there's really no selection for high fertility genes. Um, Even if you can't have any children, you can in many cases go for IVF treatment and that will help you uh, have the family that you desire. So the result of all of this is that uh, there will be an increase in infertility just naturally because we're no longer selecting for high fertility genes. We've, we've seen this in animals. Uh, so in the racehorse industry, for example, you select horses on the, their ability to win races. That's what you focus on. And you don't think about fertility. So you don't focus on fertility. And the result is that the fertility of racehorses is very low. Say the same thing in the dairy industry. You select cattle on the basis of milk yield and if you select just for milk yield and don't think about fertility, infertility declines. So if you don't select for something, you lose it. And so uh, there's going to be a background of declining infertility um, that's going to have an impact long term. And then on top of that, you have to layer the IVF industry. Uh, Roughly a third of all all infertility is due to uh, genetic factors. So um, what the IVF industry does is to enable those people with these poor fertility genes to have children. And it doesn't matter as long as IVF is a cottage industry accounting for less than 1% of the population. But nowadays, uh, in some countries, uh, up to 10% or more of the population are the product of assisted conception procedures. So if, a substantial proportion of your population is made up of um, people conceived by IVF. This is just exacerbating the retention of poor fertility genes in the population. And this you know, create, will create for, for governments and for health services um, a dilemma about how you provide uh, reproductive health care for a population where if, if 30 or 40% of the population require such treatment to have children. And uh, the one thing you can be absolutely sure of is if we get to that situation, the more we use assisted conception in one generation, the more we're going to need it in the next. So this thing will just spiral upwards and uh, be very difficult to control. So it's the sort of trajectory of all these changes. I don't think we have, we don't have a crisis now, but if you take what's going on in terms of environmental pollution, social change, and evolutionary change, and project it forwards, uh, then we could well find ourselves in a very difficult position. And I guess the other thing which is happening, which is really important as well, is that all uh, industrialized societies are showing uh, a change in their age structure. So traditionally, um, uh, an African country like Madagascar would have a triangular age structure, a broad base at the bottom with lots of young people being born, and then uh, gradually going to a narrow tip for the few uh, people who manage to make it through middle age and into uh, Uh, Into old age, but in modern industrialized society, that population pyramid has been turned on its head. So you now have a very small number of children coming into the population, supporting a large crown of uh, elderly people. The so-called super-aged societies, Mm -hmm. where um, a significant proportion of the of the population is over sixty five. So this, again, creates in the future and will create a problem for us because you now will have a small workforce working all the hours that God sends in order to support this large uh, population of elderly people who require support. And there are only uh, two ways that I can think of that you can solve that problem. One is to raise retirement age. So you just say, well, you can't retire. You've got to keep working. And, you know, Macron tried this in France and the riots that resulted from that political decision uh, are there for everybody to see. And the other obvious thing to do is to to get more and more of your uh, female population into the workforce. That's the other way that you can help create support for the older members of society. But the more you do that, the more you constrain their fertility, or their opportunities to have children. So you just make a bad situation worse. So these are the kinds of things that, uh, that worry me. It's not the, uh, the, I think at the moment we're we're traveling along okay, but if you uh, look at the changes that are taking place, they are going to have a potentially very damaging effect downstream, and I think the it is inevitable that the human population will decline. That's that's you know uh, incontrovertible. That's bound to happen, but it's that the rate and the severity of that decline is the thing we have to worry about. And if it's uncontrolled, if the population declines too fast, then there are um, you know major. Uh, uh, issues there for governments to think about in terms of the way they manage their economies, the way they manage their workforces, the way they control the environments in which we live. Uh, All of these things are um, um, going to play out and uh, could lead us into a great deal of strife. So I I guess my fundamental message uh, with this book is to try to get people aware that these, uh, these things are happening Uh, so that we can try to address them before they become very serious.
0: What are the things that we should do now to prevent it turning into outright crisis?
1: Yes, so what are the things that we should be doing now? Well, um, I I guess one of the things that we should be doing is uh, thinking about the structure of society and the way that we uh, engineer social change in order to support uh, young families who want to have children. In other words, uh, parental leave schemes have to become a political priority. Um, If you don't want your population to continue to decline, your fertility fertility rates continue to decline, you have to think about the uh, political and social changes you need to support young families having children. That's that's one obvious thing. Um, Second thing is uh, we have to be much more careful about monitoring reproductive toxicants in the environment. This, again, needs to be made a priority of environmental protection agencies. This is, you know, we, we think about toxicants that um, uh, uh, threaten human life, and in a way, this is doing the same thing. It's just that you, you don't, you know, die of reproductive failure, uh, but it does impair your ability, obviously, to contribute to the next uh, generation. Um, We need to gain a deeper understanding of the causes of human infertility. So we still don't understand why most people are infertile. And what's tended to happen is the IVF industry has now become an industry and it's used as the default treatment for all kinds of infertility that we don't understand. Um, As long as we can get an egg from the female partner and a sperm from the male partner and put them together, we're happy to just go to IVF. But we should stop using IVF as a default treatment and really try to understand much better what the causes of uh, human infertility are so that we can address them at source. Instead of just solving the problem, we try to understand why the problems occurred. As, as we've already said, I think we also re- need to raise the profile of reproductive toxicology in pharmaceutical companies. So the, the the compounds that we are releasing into the environment, the compounds that we are developing for clinical use, are reproductively safe. And you know, fundamentally, we need to completely revise how we address sex education. So sex education, as it currently is. Um, Conveyed is something which originated in Victorian times and has an absolute focus on preventing teenage pregnancies. It's you know uh, uh, it's about um, convincing people that if a man comes into even close proximity with, with a woman, it's likely to generate uh, uh, an unwanted child that will cause problems for everybody. But that's just not the reality. Um, the truth is that fertility is not a tap that you can turn on and off. It's uh, actually something which is uh, quite fragile and is there for a short period of time. And then it's uh, gone forever. So we really need to revise the way that we teach uh, sex education to, uh, to young people and get them to understand just how fragile their reproductive system is and to look after it. And... Um, And finally, and most importantly, I think we need to improve social political awareness about the change that's about to come. Uh, As I've said, a decline of human population is inevitable. It's going to start in about uh, 10, 20 years' time. And then if we don't address all these issues, it's going to be very steep and and could be very uh, damaging. So we just need to improve people's awareness that this is going to happen to us as a species and try to... uh, generate some level of control over the changes that are in many ways inevitable.
0: And what discoveries in your research for your book The Infertility Trap surprised you the most?
1: I I think the the graph that kind of took my breath away was the uh, one that I generated showing the increase in testicular cancer rates as fertility rates um, get close to replacement level, get close to two. So as societies go through the demographic transition and limit their fertility, uh, you suddenly see this exponential increase in uh, testicular cancer rates. So something is happening in these advanced industrial um, societies, which uh, is having a major impact on the development of the testis. And in the book, I guess what I've done is to tie this in with what is also happening in terms of uterine cancer and breast cancer, which are also increasing rapidly in modern uh, industrialized societies and trying to draw a thread that brings all those things together uh, through uh, exposure to estrogenic compounds. So that uh, from a scientific perspective was to me the most uh, uh, powerful thing that came out of this. Uh, many of the other things I was aware of <coughs> and, and, uh, this was, uh, I guess, in many ways, l- less of a voyage of discovery for me, but more uh, a kind of um, my attempts to try and to communicate things um, because I give a lot of public lectures on reproduction and I'm always um, surprised by how little people understand of their own reproduction. I, I come across all kinds of uh, strange beliefs about uh, the reproductive system uh, which people harbour and it influenced their behavior. Uh, So I think um, being able to communicate the realities of reproductive health to people is a very important thing. And that gave me a lot of satisfaction to be able to do that.
0: And do you ever consider some of those more science fiction um, sort of ways to address this problem, you know, like having artificial wombs that carry children in the future? (laughs)
1: that's a very interesting question Uh, funnily enough um, when when I was lecturing undergraduates one of the things uh, I used to get them to speculate about the future of human reproduction, what will this look like in centuries to come and uh, I think we all uh, predicted that IVF would become more and more um, prevalent uh, as it has done Um, we could predict that it's going to be used for um, more and more cases of it different kinds of infertility, which it has done. Um, but um, at the same time, um, uh, obstetricians and perinatologists were developing ways of um, keeping babies alive that are produced very immaturely. And it's only a matter of time be- <laughs> before those, the two ends of that process meet and it's possible to have the whole of human development take place in, in vitro. And indeed, uh, when I was growing up uh, uh, as a scientist in Cambridge, uh, there were people uh, working in Cambridge on just this. So the exogenesis, the, the idea that you could create uh, an embryo and culture it to term outside of the womb was something that people were interested in trying to do. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Um, you can get uh, an embryo to... Grow to the point where it's got a beating heart, but that's it doesn't develop much more. One of the things that actually defeats you in in a, in a tissue culture system is gravity, mm. and so um, I, I don't know that those those uh, those problems are ever going to be surmountable. So uh, I, I think IVF will become more and more uh, part of, of the reproductive spectrum. As I've said, there are some countries now where it's 10%, but the, the vector is uh, inexorably upwards. So I, I see more and more children being produced by IVF. And um, I think this does create a problem for governments about how you provide this uh, healthcare If uh, 20 or 30% of your population are needing IVF, how do you provide that? You can't can't have a situation where only the rich are able to pay for the treatment to have children. You'd think that having children would be socially an inalienable right. Mm -hmm. So this will create a lot of pressure on governments and national health services to solve if we don't do something about it and try to get a better hand on why human fertility is declining.
0: this has been a truly insightful discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Ah. (laughs) Well I don't know that I've got another book in me. I I shall uh, wait to see how this book goes before I write another one. I I would like to write another book uh, and if I was to write another book it would be about sexual differentiation. Um, Again I find people don't really understand how the two genders are are created and uh, all the shades of grey in between. So uh, I think that's something that could do with some scientific input and uh, I'd like to write a book about that. But I'll see how this book goes before I commit to another. Uh, otherwise, uh, I'm spending a lot of time continuing my work in reproduction. Um, one of the uh, discoveries we made as a research group is that uh, a lot of infertility is due to oxidative stress and my research group is currently working very hard on developing ways to both uh, diagnose oxidative stress in infertile couples and developing ways to treat that oxidative stress that doesn't mean that you have to take recourse to IVF, that it can be addressed uh, pharmaceutically, which is what we hope. So that's one of the major things that I'm doing currently.
0: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Well, the book is uh, freely available from all good and probably bad booksellers um, ar- around the globe. Uh, you find it on um, Amazon and uh, Booktopia and all the usual uh, outlets. It's available um, both as an electronic copy and as a, a hard copy, paperback copy, and um Uh, details of our work are on our university website so if you go to the university of Newcastle in uh, Australia and look at the priority research center in reproductive health you will find uh, uh, examples of the kind of work that we get up to and um, yeah those are the major ways I think and I still do uh, give a fair number of lectures so uh, hopefully uh, people may stumble across me giving a lecture on this topic at some point in the future.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It was an enormous pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.